Hey there, and welcome to Pulmcast. I'm sorry. Who are you? What do you mean? Jeremy, it's been a little while since we've heard from you. Let's be honest. I think it's been a little while since people have heard from Pulmcast in general. Yeah, that's true. I feel bad about that. What happened? The short version is I think life just got in the way for both of us. Things got busy. I had a lot of bandwidth issues that prevented me from actually recording episodes with the crew. We've been thinking about what it is that we're actually doing. We have this conglomeration of episodes where we've had interviews and some core content stuff, but we've lost focus of what it is that we're actually trying to do. I do think it's probably important every now and then for us to talk to the audience and give you guys our vision and what our goals are and what Poemcast is supposed to be, and then give us feedback on where we're totally wrong and we need to change it up. So at the end of the day, in my mind, what it is that I want to be doing with you is learning right alongside you. I want to consider myself a person who wants to be the best, but at the same time, I recognize that there's always ways that I can be better. And so I think moving forward, we want to focus Poemcast on being a team of people who want to be better. And if you're listening, we hope that you want to be better too. The other thing that we wanted to make sure that you guys know, you're going to be hearing the most from Jeremy and myself, but Poemcast is more than just us two. The third person in our main trifecta is Rachel Mulder, who is in charge of editing and generating the website content. And we're the best three friends that anyone could have. The best. Sorry. And the three of us work together on the vision and direction of Palmcast. So it's really the, the three-headed monster. Outside of that, we have a bunch of contributors from our pulmonary critical care division that we're in. And we're going to continue to leverage the awesome resources in that group even more over the next couple of years. With that in mind, why don't we give the people what they actually want? Because today we're talking about sodium bicarbonate. What you're going to find out is that it's anything but basic. Are we we still doing basic jokes? Are we we already did that in the ABG episodes? I think that's about as basic as I can. Yeah, we should probably cut that. No more, any more salty jokes? No more salty jokes. You sure? I'm 100% sure. So shut up. Why don't we take it to the bedside? We have a patient who presents with a pretty clear metabolic acidosis. pH is 6.9. They're crashing and burning. Don't look too hot. Their lactate comes back, and it's 7.3. Nurse asks you, Should we give any bicarb? And if so, How much? John, what do you think? Wow, lots of of questions going through my head. First off, is the patient vented? And if so, are they maximizing their respiratory rate? They are vented and they are maxed on their respiratory rate as much as their ventilatory mechanics will allow. Okay, so I've got a high minute ventilation. That's the best I can do there. I'll just give you the non-evidence-based. I'm at the bedside going, that is a low pH. It's a family-friendly show. I am very worried this patient's going to code. I don't have a whole lot of things I can do right now. If I've already optimized the vent, I'm already working on source control and all the sepsis core measures. I'm probably pushing bicarb on this patient, especially if you said he didn't look too hot. So you're going to just grab an amp of bicarb, two amps of bicarb. How much are you going to actually give? Two. Two. Based on just historical practice. Okay. And this is more, just to be clear, this is anecdote, evidence-free. This is my 2 a.m. brain. This is not my podcast research brain. And in your mind's mind, what do you reasonably expect to happen when you push two amps of bicarb? Are you thinking in, in your head, 
this is going to fix it? Or are you thinking, I just don't have anything left and I won't be surprised if this doesn't work? It's, it's definitely more of the latter. I'm, I'm thinking I need a Band-Aid to get this patient out of imminent arrest mode, knowing that transiently his blood pressure is going to look better. He may look a little better for the next hour or so, but it's going to wear off. And I think this is the conversation that kind of happens a lot where we are in dire resuscitation scenarios Patient has a significant acidemia and we don't have anything left. Maybe CRRT, but as a temporizing measure, bicarb's really all we got. None of us are thinking it's a panacea, but we don't have anything else, so we give it. Well, I'm sure as this episode goes on, you're going to tell me that is an entirely wrong frame of mind to think about. Uh, well, we'll see. I know for a fact that there's a couple people in our group who would disagree with your sentiment. That if this is entirely due to lactic acidosis and what they would suggest... Is you just sit on it. It's so hard to do it in critical yeah. care medicine. We are trained to intervene, to be resuscitationists. And this is the conversation going on across the country. Do we give bicarb? Do we not? What we're going to talk about in this episode, who to give bicarb to, who absolutely not to give bicarb to, and my favorite, physiology. Before we dive into the evidence, why don't we review some acid-based physiology? If you haven't already, now would be a great time to pause, head back, and listen to our ABG Jiu-Jitsu episode. Remember that physiologic pH is somewhere in the neighborhood of 7.35 to 7.45. And the body maintains this through a variety of mechanisms. The major ones that we have, like the bicarbonate buffer system, bicarbonate and proton, the carbon dioxide and water. And then we have the lungs that take that carbon dioxide and we can either breathe off more or breathe off less. This is the classic patient that you have with DKA who presents with Kussmaul's respirations. And don't forget about the kidneys, which can excrete, retain, or produce bicarb. And probably the unsung hero of this whole acid-based scenario is hemoglobin inside red blood cells, which can bind both proton or H+ and carbon dioxide and serve as a buffer in that way. And it's really good that we have these redundant systems to compensate for acid-based disturbances because the effects of acidemia in the body are particularly deleterious. Deleterious? I go, I go. Deleterious? It's deleterious. So what are those redundant systems? Well, first off, there's a reduction in cardiac output, which is mediated by both depression of myocardial contractility and increased afterload in the pulmonary and systemic circulation. On top of that, we have inappropriate tachycardia. And combined with the reduction in cardiac output, this inappropriate tachycardia reduces filling time. And so we have this global reduction in cardiac output. Also, potassium will shift out of the cells, leading to hyperkalemia, further depressing myocardial contractility and increasing your risk of arrhythmias. And acidemia in general decreases the threshold for arrhythmia. So mind you, we have these patients who have significant acidemia, often because of the fact that they're sick, and that acidemia is making their cardiac output go down, increasing their risk of arrhythmia, and decreasing their threshold for arrhythmia. All of these things are bad. So of course, shouldn't we just give bicarb? Well, why don't we talk about what happens when you give a patient bicarbonate? So just so we're all on the same page here, one amp is 50 mil equivalents, premixed solution of equal parts sodium and bicarbonate. You can find these in the crash carts or in a Pixis near you. And as evidence for the fact that we use bicarbonate all the time, there is a national shortage of these premixed vials. And so what you're going to find is that often you have to draw them up from these little samples into a syringe. Uh, and sometimes you can't get bicarb at all. It takes forever. That's a scary shift. So let's say that we give one 
amp of sodium bicarbonate. That is 50 milliequivalents of concentrated sodium bicarbonate. So how concentrated is it? I thought you'd never ask. One amp of 8.4%, that's a normal standard concentration, of sodium bicarbonate is 2,000 milliosms per liter. So milliosms per liter, that means absolutely nothing to me. Okay, well, let me step back and put this in context. 2,000 milliosms is seven times more hypertonic than regular old plasma. And to contextualize that even further, if you've ever given somebody 3% or hypertonic saline. Yes, yes, I have. That drug that's under lock and key. We have to consult nephrology and put in a central line and all this stuff in our institution. One amp of sodium bicarbonate is more than double the osmolality and the concentration of sodium of an equal volume of hypertonic saline. More than double. That is really, really, really salty. More salty than John when I make jokes about his Georgia Bulldogs. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Didn't know we were throwing a bulldog joke in there. Sorry, bro. You can make one about Atlanta United if you want. But it's so funny that we're so cautious with hypertonic saline, but we just slam bicarb all left and right willy-nilly. It is an interesting concept. We move people to the ICU to do hypertonic. You got most likely calling it for all this shit. It's a big deal. So with that in mind, Because one amp of bicarb is so concentrated, one of the first physiologic changes that happens actually deals with sodium and water. All of that sodium enters the extracellular space and serum sodium, this is in study, I can put it in the show notes, typically increases by just less than two milliequivalents. So if you started with the serum sodium of 140, give one amp of bicarb, your serum sodium when you recheck is going to be about 142-ish. And in doing that, you're going to remove water from cells all over the body, about 125 mLs. So let me make sure I have this right. So I give one amp of bicarb, I'm going to raise the serum sodium by about two, and I'm going to remove 125 mLs of water from cells throughout the body. Yep, and that's just one amp. So let's say I slam four amps of bicarb. I'm going to raise the sodium eight milliequivalents. I'm going to suck out about a half a liter of intracellular fluid. Yep. And the increase in serum sodium when you're giving that many amps of bicarb tends to be a little bit less because of all that water that you're removing from the intracellular compartment. But to be clear, you're dehydrating the body and giving a huge sodium load. It's good that you brought that up because I'm not sure I can recall a time in practice when I've given four amps of bicarb where I've seen the physically notice the sodium jump up. Check it. I mean, the more you focus on it, you'll see it. And, And actually, I recall a cardiac arrest that was run out of hospital and then came into the ED. And it was one of those scenarios where all of us were kind of like, yo, I don't think that this is going to go well. It's been running for a really long time. And we all suspected that there was significant acidemia. And I had actually come late to the arrest, but there were five amps of bicarb peri-arrest that were, or during the arrest that were pushed. And when we rechecked a serum sodium, actually intra-arrest, it was 152 And I I don't suspect that the patient came in with a serum sodium of 152. I don't have a pre-arrest sodium to demonstrate that. But it just goes to show you, yeah, I mean, this is real, like, hypertonic saline, essentially. Like, imagine giving 200 mLs of hypertonic saline IV push. That would make you feel very uncomfortable. So if all that stuff happens to the sodium, what actually happens to the bicarbonate? Well, that depends on the pH. Okay. 
What about patients with significant acidemia? Let's arbitrarily say the pH is 7.1 or less than 7.1. Okay, so there's some predictable changes. Within seconds, in a patient who has significant acidemia, almost all of the bicarbonate that you give is going to be chewed up and used as a buffer. And what I mean by that, bicarbonate and one proton ion, or H+, is going to be converted by carbonic anhydrase into carbonic acid and subsequently carbon dioxide and water. I'll say you lost me in all the carbons. Yeah, bicarb, proton, into carbon dioxide and water. Okay, so the pH is going to rise is what you're saying. Mm, Sort of. It will rise temporarily, like super temporarily. But because bicarbonate is metabolized into CO2, which is an acid, the change is going to be short-lived. So yeah, you're chewing up all the proton, but you're just generating brand new acid. So this is the really important take-home point. You can only expect a lasting change in plasma pH if you or the patient are able to increase ventilation. And I really want to double down on that. For anybody listening, giving bicarb, thinking that you're going to improve the patient's condition. If you have a patient who is maximally ventilated on a respiratory rate of 35 and there's no more room you can go and you give two amps of bicarb, you are not going to affect this patient's pH because all you're going to do is generate more CO2. You can check out a link in the show notes. This has been demonstrated in patients and dogs alike. If ventilation is kept constant, pH cannot change in a closed system like the body. After all of that bicarbonate is consumed, over the next few minutes, any remaining bicarb is just going to redistribute throughout the body and end up diluted by all of that water that we dragged out of the cells. So let's talk about patients that don't have a significant acidemia. What happens to them? So the changes are almost exactly the same. Again, within seconds, it's going to be used as a buffer turned into CO2. Some of it will also be diluted, but here's the big difference. Over hours, almost all of the bicarb is going to be excreted by the kidney, which has a massive capacity for handling bicarb. It'll just dump it out. So provided that renal function is normal, if you give somebody bicarb and they don't really need it, they're just going to pee it all out. So I think our listeners at this point have had enough acid-based physiology for today. Never enough. Never, ever enough. But, I know, I've had enough. Okay, fine. We can summarize. So we give one amp of bicarb. What happens? So first off, it rapidly dissociates into sodium and bicarbonate. And remember that that sodium distributes throughout the extracellular compartment. And it's going to raise serum sodium by about two milliequivalents per amp. And it's going to dehydrate the intracellular compartment by about 125 mLs. That is removing water from body cells. So then the bicarbonate is quickly buffered into carbon dioxide and water. And any remaining bicarbonate is diluted by water that followed all of that sodium. And if there isn't significant acidemia, the kidney will excrete a good bit of bicarbonate over the next few hours. Now the books tell us that one amp of bicarb is going to raise the serum pH by about 0.1. So if a patient had a pH of 7.0, you give them four amps of bicarb, you could get them to 7.4. But it's important to actually know that this rule only is true if a patient can maintain a constant CO2, meaning increase ventilation. If you cannot increase ventilation and you slam in four amps of bicarb, you will effectively not change the pH at all. It's disappointing. Very. One thing we didn't mention, bicarbonate also reduces blood calcium levels, specifically ionized calcium. So if you find yourself giving multiple amps of bicarb, consider checking in ionized calcium or replacing your calcium empirically. Wow. I actually didn't know a lot about bicarb before this. Yeah, I thought I did. Apparently I don't. Why don't we first start with scenarios that we can agree on always require exogenous bicarbonate therapy. These are boring and probably not what you came to the episode for, but they're worth mentioning. 
First, let's start with non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, so NAGMA. So this is a pretty evident one. Most NAGMAs are direct bicarb loss or maybe gain of chloride, and, and the fix is quite simple. Replace the bicarbonate deficit. Very, very easy. These are patients with hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis from saline, with diarrhea, adrenal insufficiency, renal tubular acidosis. This, the, the fix is just give bicarb. Super easy. What else? What about hyperkalemia? Yeah, and this one's a little more complicated physiologically. We won't dive into it, but it'll shift potassium into cells. So hyperkalemia, great. Good bicarb. We do have a whole episode on that if you're interested. Throwback. The last one's medications that block sodium channels. And often what you'll see is this prolongation of the QT. You may see QRS widening. So if you have these characteristic EKG changes in a story consistent with things like local anesthetic toxicity, TCA overdose, carbamazepine, antiarrhythmics, especially like flecainide, you can consider administering exogenous bicarb to narrow those EKG changes that you see. So the one that sometimes we forget about is salicylate toxicity. Ah, yes. So in that scenario, you're trying to alkalinization <laughs> alkalinize that's what I was looking for always better you're trying to alkalinize your urine trying to make you a pp basic as jeremy so eloquently says so that's pretty much it that's all that we can universally agree on in regards to bicarb i can literally say that i've never thought twice about giving bicarbonate in those scenarios so why don't we get to the meat and potatoes? Let's just list them out. The scenarios where we don't agree to give bicarb. Some of the most common ones in the ICU is an anion gap metabolic acidosis. And some of those most common ones are diabetic ketoacidosis, lactic acidosis, and uremic acidosis, particularly associated with acute kidney injury. And I think the more interesting one, too, is cardiac arrest, like empiric therapy, or if we do an ABG intra-arrest and see that the pH is low. Let's dive right into DKA. In my mind, this is the least contested disease state. In 2019, I would say most of us understand that bicarb isn't the best idea for these patients. I said though, Jeremy, it's real uncomfortable when you got that pretty sick looking DK patient and you get the pH back and it's 6.8. I 100% agree. And it is very tempting to give bicarb when everyone in the room is staring at you, wondering what you're going to do to help this toxic appearing patient. But we are fooling ourselves to think that bicarb is going to help. And at the end of the day, we need to remember what's going on. And the primary underlying problem here in diabetic ketoacidosis, or really any endogenous anion gap metabolic acidosis for that matter, is new production of acid. In this case, ketone. Exactly. Unlike a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, the problem is not bicarb loss. It's acid production. When we give bicarbonate to patients who are in DKA, we do a few things. First, we buffer all of that extra hydrogen ion with bicarbonate to form CO2 and water. And I agree, this is theoretically a good thing. But these patients usually have Kuzmal respirations. And aren't we already at their maximum ventilatory capacity? Yeah, we are already blowing off as much CO2 as we possibly can. And so if you go and buffer all their proton and produce more CO2, you're going to make them work harder. And they have already been running a respiratory marathon for hours and hours and hours. And remember, bicarb is only effective at increasing the pH if we can also increase ventilation to remove the excess CO2 that's generated. Right. In this situation, you can't. And so it ends up being a wash from a pH standpoint. Right. And second, remember that the underlying problem is not bicarb loss, but acid 
production. So when we give someone bicarbonate and consume up all of that proton, hydrogen ion, we create a scenario where the ketones that are still there can generate even more proton. So sit back and think about that for a minute. By giving bicarb, we have produced more CO2, and now we have also allowed ketones to produce even more proton. So we've essentially produced double the acid that we started with. That was completely unhelpful. Right. And so it should come as no surprise that bicarb is not effective at raising the serum pH and DKA. And this is supported by the evidence. There was a systematic review of over 44 studies. We're going to link in the show notes looking at bicarb and DKA. And in that review, it was found to have no clinical benefit and actually some evidence of harm, including some pretty major things like cerebral edema, coma, prolonged hospitalization and stuff we've already talked about, like worsening of ketosis, etc. The other thing that bicarb does in DKA is worsens tissue hypoxia. And the idea here is that the presence of acidosis actually decreases hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen, causing what we call a right shift. And so when you give huge amps of bicarb in this scenario, you can cause local ischemia or tissue hypoxia in these patients with DKA. And then, of course, we're already concerned about the potassium level in patients who have DKA and administering bicarb in addition to insulin is just going to cause worsening potassium shifts, worsening hypokalemia and increased risk for arrhythmia. So at this point, we have no evidence of clinical benefit of bicarb and actually strong suggestion, both physiologic and in our studies of harm. If we are considering bicarb in DKA, my question to you is, what's your treatment threshold? 7.1, 7.0, 6.8, 6.7. And when do you stop? When are you happy? It's a great question. I think based on the fact we've got some pretty strong data against it, until we have any data positive for it, and specifically in DKA, we should probably just refrain from administering bicarbonate entirely in DKA patients. Yeah. And so if bicarb isn't the answer, what is? So at the end of the day, the problem is ketone production from acute insulin imbalance. If the pH is low enough or the patient is toxic appearing enough to the point where you're considering pushing bicarb, you should probably focus your efforts on safely administering insulin instead and resuscitating the patient. Yeah. So there's some data out there that advocates that if the serum potassium isn't significantly low, so if it's not say less than 3.3, some might say 3.5 or 3.7. If it's not low though, you could consider additional boluses of IV insulin instead of those scenarios where you would consider giving bicarbonate. And the one thing I want to make sure that we highlight here, we are an entirely adult ICU But if you are specifically practicing in peds, you have to be really careful with these extra IV insulin boluses in that population who are at an increased risk for cerebral edema if we drop the blood sugar too quickly. So let's move on to something a little more controversial, lactic acidosis. This is an interesting one because just like in DKA, the problem is acid production rather than bicarb loss. But in this scenario, the acid is lactate, and the reason lactate is produced is usually hypoperfusion, shock, and tissue hypoxia. And this presents an interesting paradox, because on the one hand, giving bicarbonate seems like a fruitless effort. Because just like in DKA, right? Giving bicarb is going to make more CO2, we're going to need more ventilation to change pH, and giving bicarb is going to allow more lactate to dissociate and generate more proton and serum. But on the other hand, we know that severe acidemia has deleterious effects on hemodynamics, a pretty substantial reduction in cardiac output, for example. So maybe giving bicarbonate, we can improve hemodynamics, improve tissue perfusion, and reduce lactate production? Catch 22. Threat level, 
midnight. <laughs> Why don't we look at what the literature has to show? Yeah, it's kind of the wild, wild west out here. This is a data-free zone, or at least a not high-quality data zone. The data supporting use of bicarbonate in lactic acidosis is pretty lacking. We do have some data demonstrating some of the harms, especially in patients with lactic acidosis, but without severe acidemia. And in this situation, we're talking about pHs greater than 7.15. We talked about some of these harms in our physiology review earlier, including increases in PCO2, hypernatremia, reduced ionized calcium, intracellular dehydration, and acceleration of lactate production. Because of these potential harms, most experts agree that we should not be administering bicarbonate to patients with lactic acidosis and a serum pH of greater than 7.15. And this data is actually supported by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommendations. They recommend against giving bicarbonate therapy for the purpose of improving hemodynamics or reducing vasorepressor requirements in patients who have hypoperfusion-induced lactic acidosis and a pH of greater than 7.5. For you evidence mongers out there, this is a grade 2B recommendation, but they conveniently do not comment on what to do if the pH is less than 7.15. This leaves us in sort of a data gray zone on what to do when the pH is less than 7.15. There are a few physiologic studies, both small human clinical trials and canine studies, to support the idea in patients with severe acidemia, pH less than 7.1, that bicarbonate improves hemodynamics, improves tissue perfusion, and reduces your risk of arrhythmia. Now, anecdotally, I've seen a lot of my ICU colleagues agree that if a patient's got a high lactate and a pH of less than 7.1, we should probably give bicarb. But we need to be clear on a number of things. Number one, lactic acidosis that severe has a high mortality, sometimes approaching up to 80%. And although there is some physiologic data to support that bicarb administration may improve hemodynamics, I want to be 150% clear that we have no mortality data to support this notion. I think that all of us would agree that this is not a fix-all when it comes to a situation this dire. I would say probably the recommendation here is that if a patient has a lactic acidosis, a pH less than 7.1, we can evaluate on a case-by-case -case basis to give bicarbonate, recognizing that it may not fix things, but also recognizing that it could just be a bridge to more definitive therapies like improving perfusion, source control, or starting the patient on CRRT. Now, specific scenarios that are supported in patients who have a lactic acidosis to give bicarb, we have two. One is a patient who has a lactic acidosis with a concomitant non-anion metabolic acidosis. And this would be like the patient who's got an elevated lactate and got a bunch of saline or maybe an elevated lactate and had a lot of diarrhea and bicarbonate loss. The way that you would detect this, row back to our ABG episode if you would like to learn more, but you use a delta ratio or a corrected bicarb and you would be supported to give low dose bicarbonate therapy to replace that non-anion gap component. The other scenario where bicarb can be helpful is in lactic acidosis plus acute kidney injury. There's specifically a trial called the Bicar ICU, which we're going to link in the show notes. There's been a lot of good foam material on the study. If you want to check some of that out, we'll link a few of them. So specifically in one of the subgroups in that study, they did notice bicarbonate infusions had an improvement in mortality, specifically in that subgroup of patients. And we know this to be true if you look at AKI patients, particularly looking at CRT rates and so forth, that bicarb drips can potentially stave off need for dialysis. So... 
Let's move on to cardiac arrest. This one has to be a slam dunk. We got a cardiac arrest, arresting for a long time. They have global hyperperfusion, lots of lactate generation, pH drops pretty significantly. Bicarb has to improve ROSC, right? Well, no. What about if we know that they have significant acidosis? That makes physiologic sense. Exactly. But no, even in significantly acidemic patients, bicarb hasn't been shown to improve ROSC. I'm specifically mentioning two landmark trials. One RCT of almost 900 patients with pre-hospital cardiac arrest had no improvement in survival with bicarbonate therapy. Another RCT of 500 patients with a systole or V-fib refractory to initial defibrillation randomized to bicarb versus normal saline had no difference in survival between bicarb and normal saline. In both trials, subgroup analyses of patients who happened to have an ABG-drawn intra-arrest demonstrated acidemia. No difference. Wow. That makes me wonder why. The physiologic reasons that were commented in these studies were fluid shifts and significant hypernatremia, hypocalcemia leading to decreased inotropy, changes in oxygen affinity. Remember talking about that right shift. And if we give a bunch of bicarbonate, we make hemoglobin hold on to oxygen more tightly. And this is one that's probably really unrecognized, is that there is unreliable ventilation in cardiac arrests. This could be poor bag valve mask technique or no advanced airway being present in general. If you give a bunch of bicarb and you can't ventilate off that CO2, all you have done is made a patient hypernatremic and done nothing to their pH. And then lastly, a lot of times when you give a bunch of bicarb, when a patient's got a bunch of hypoperfusion and then they get ROSC and all that hypoperfusion goes away, you are left with a significant metabolic alkalosis, which has been shown to really worsen a lot of post-arrest outcomes. So AHA, if you're looking for your guidelines, recommends against routine bicarb administration in patients with cardiac arrest. We know some clinicians choose to give bicarb intra-arrest, especially if pH is less than 7.1. But we need to recognize that this is a data-free zone. And as a sidebar, if you were to really pull somebody aside, again, I know we've said this before, and ask them, hey, that bicarb that you gave, do you really think that it's going to help this patient? I would say most of them would probably comment, I'm just throwing the kitchen sink. Absolutely. I mean, if we're being honest. I think so. I think a couple caveats here. If you're worried that the patient might have arrested due to hyperkalemia, good time to give bicarb. And also think about TCA overdose. Last point, if you're going to give bicarb and cardiac arrest, please, please, please make sure you're supplementing calcium. You have to give calcium, especially if you're giving multiple amps. All right, let's bring it home, Jair. All right, so as a take-home, when should we definitely give bicarbonate therapy? This is simple. Three answers. Hyperkalemia, non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, and drug overdoses, specifically sodium channel blockers and salicylate toxicity. When should we maybe consider giving bicarb? This is a little bit more complicated. Lactic acidosis and a pH of less than 7.1. Lactic acidosis with an AKI and uremia. Lactic acidosis with and concurrent non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. And again, we calculate that with the delta ratio or the corrected bicarbonate. In addition to those, you can consider giving bicarbonate therapy to patients with uremic acidosis and acute kidney injury without lactic acidosis. And then in cardiac arrest, uh, question, I don't really know. 
Should you give it empirically? Should you give it in severe acidemia only? We don't know. Data-free zone. You should definitely give it if the patient has cardiac arrest and hyperkalemia or a sodium channel blocker overdose. When should we not give it? DKA, especially in pediatric population, and patients who have a lactic acidosis and their pH is greater than 7.15. Now, if you haven't been listening yet, this is the part where you need to listen up. I think that the era of amps and amps and amps bicarbonate needs to be over. 8.4% sodium bicarbonate is really, really concentrated. And if you take a step back and ask yourself if you're comfortable giving a bunch of hypertonic saline, then by all means, go ahead and give it. But we can't delusion ourselves into thinking that we are not giving a medication that has twice the concentration of hypertonic saline and be okay with that. Dilute ourselves. We should dilute ourselves. Oh, that was a sick pun. So good. good. Everyone knows your puns are out of control, bro. Really, though, I think that we should start considering diluting our bicarb at least by half to 4.2%. That's what they did in Bicar ICU. Or what my preference is, take three amps of bicarb, mix it in a liter of D5 water. That essentially gives you an isotonic bicarbonate drip to administer over time. Yeah, I think my takeaway from this is we are definitely underutilizing bicarb drips and, and should be doing that. I do think there's some short-term scenarios that are not ever going to go away in the ICU. Yeah, I'll give you that. And uh, sometimes we talk about it in in airway class. We're about to intubate somebody who's got a significant acidemia and you're about to have a period of apnea, etc. Maybe it's okay. Just know you're using a Band-Aid. It's temporary. The other thing that I just want to comment on is there are standard base access equations that you can use to figure out how much bicarb you want to give. But keep in mind that you have to think about ventilation while you're giving that. So yeah, you can calculate the bicarb amount, but it's not going to mean anything if you can't fix ventilation. And if you're going to start a bicarb drip or if you're going to give bicarb boluses, please make sure you're checking those electrolytes, specifically sodium and calcium. Never thought we'd make a bicarb episode. Today we did. And we did. Good job. Welcome back to our new show where we will always continue to be better. Uh, we got to work on that tagline. So for now, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading. <laughs>